morning we're studying the book of Acts together. We come now to chapter 8. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you wave, and that'll get their attention, and they'll get a Bible into your hand. It'll be marked to our passage today so that you can not only hear the Word but read it as well. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this morning. Chapter 8 of the book of Acts, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is Stephen's death, and at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were scattered, and that will be the focus of our attention this morning, that word scattered, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time of worship and song that we have enjoyed with you. And as Samuel has prayed and as we... Know in our heart, you have given us every cause for praise, Lord, to be directed toward you. You have blessed us so richly in Jesus. You have blessed us in ways that can never be touched by the world or by our circumstances. And we thank you for the opportunity today to worship you in song, to pour out our hearts to you in this way in response to your goodness. And now we want to continue to worship you in the study of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear by your Holy Spirit, give us minds to understand, give us the mind of Christ for what this passage is intended to do in our lives, Lord, as we are in these places of scattering so often within our life. Or you know that weeks from now or months from now that such a season is coming and you want to use this morning to prepare us for that. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word. We come to your word now, longing to hear your voice, Lord. Help us to hear your voice and how it applies to our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that following the martyrdom of Stephen, that a great persecution against Christians arose in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was where the Christians at this point in time were almost entirely concentrated. And the driving force behind this persecution, we're told, was a man by the name of Saul, the same man who would ultimately become a follower of Jesus Christ and become affectionately known and uh, greatly beloved for 2,000 years of church history as the Apostle Paul. And as we saw last time, the words of our passage communicate to us the persecution that was meted out by Saul against that early church and how savage and how merciless it was. Again, in verse 1, it was a great persecution. Verse 1, it resulted in a scattering of God's people. Here was a persecution in Jerusalem against Christians that was so great that it scattered them in all directions out of the city in an effort to escape it. It produced, we're told in verse 3, great havoc and devastation. Saul, we're told in verse 3, forcibly entered the houses of believers. And then further in verse 3, he proceeded to drag both men and women out of their homes. And then as if all of that were not enough, he committed them to prison. Very, very heavy, very intense scene. If we take a moment to kind of project ourselves as a Christian to be living at that time and be experiencing these kind of things. 
We also remember from our passage last time that the Holy Spirit chose to focus on one particular saint of these multiplied thousands. Uh, Some estimate that as many as 35,000 Christians were driven out of the city of Jerusalem at this time as a result of the persecution. But the Holy Spirit chose to focus on one of those multiplied thousands who were scattered out of the city of Jerusalem, a man by the name of Philip. And of Philip we were told that his scattering, verse 5, took him to what was probably the capital city of Samaria, that there he preached Christ to them, he preached Jesus as the promised Messiah to them. Verse 6, that the Holy Spirit proceeded to confirm the message of Philip with accompanying signs and wonders. And the result is given to us in verses 6 through 12 with one accord, verse 6, the multitudes heeded the message that was spoken by Paul, uh, by uh, Philip. They listened to the message that he spoke. Verse 7, many were delivered from demon possession. Imagine being delivered from being possessed by a demon or having your husband or your wife or your child or a parent delivered in that way. What an awesome display of power. Many who were paralyzed and lame were told in verse 7 were then healed. Significantly in verse 8, we're told that the entire city was as a result filled with great joy. We're told that a large number of people believed unto salvation in verse 12 and that they were further water baptized as we're told in verse 12. An amazing uh, revival, an amazing uh, turn of events against the kingdom of darkness, this persecution Uh, The Holy Spirit made sure that the devil paid for that persecution against his people. And now as we kind of promised last week and we didn't get to, we want to spend the bulk of our time this morning noticing several very practical applications, I think, from this passage for our lives, for those seasons in our life when we find ourselves scattered by virtue of circumstances. This passage, first of all, teaches us how committed God is to fulfilling His plan for each of our lives. I think that there's this very, very famous gospel track, probably the most famous gospel track that in my generation, and it was entitled and is entitled, The Four Spiritual Laws. Maybe you have heard of it. Maybe you came to the Lord by virtue of reading that particular track. And the first of the four laws that are laid out in that tract declares that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I think that as Christians, when thinking about our salvation, we can be most prone to focus on the fact that God loves me, and that's wonderful. But so often we forget the second part, that now that we are saved, God has a wonderful plan for our lives. And then to realize that God is very, very committed (laughs) to leading us into that plan. And oftentimes, He is far more interested in leading us into His plan for our lives than we are interested in being led into that plan. Jesus, we remember, had spoken to the apostles, to the disciples, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. He said, "'All authority has been given to me.'" in heaven and on earth. And go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Amen. And that is known as the Great Commission. In the book of Acts chapter 1, Jesus had spoken to the disciples, to that early church. Chapter 1, verse 8 Jesus declared, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And yet, here it is some five years later, and the church remains almost entirely in the city of Jerusalem. They sit comfortably in Jerusalem. They have filled the city with the gospel, but apparently without 
a thought at all at this point for Judea or Samaria or the uttermost parts of the earth, the Gentile world as Jesus had commanded. And if they had remained undisturbed in this, un this comfortable condition, it appears that they would have been very, very happy to live and die the rest of their life in Jerusalem and allow Christianity to live and die there as well and forever be just this mere asterisk in religious history, remembered as just some small sect of Judaism that arose for a, a few decades in the city of Jerusalem but died. It just came and went as opposed to what God had intended for the gospel and for the Christianity, and that is to turn it into this worldwide juggernaut of salvation, the plan of God for Christianity. And thus God comes along to that early church, and He blows everything open by allowing a great persecution to force the church to move, to be scattered, in the words of the passage, into the next phase of its expansion, now into Samaria, now into Judea, ultimately into the uttermost parts of the earth. And here are these Christians in the city of Jerusalem. They're wonderful Christians, but they had grown very, very comfortable and fallen asleep to some degree to concerning God's plan for their lives. And what is true of them is a temptation for each of us as Christians as well. We naturally, very naturally, gravitate toward comfort and toward safety in life. And we gravitate toward it, and then we sink our roots very deeply into that safety and into that comfort, even if it means ignoring or falling asleep completely regarding God's plan for our lives. And sometimes He has to shake things up in order to wake us up to the fact that He not only saved us into a relationship, but saved us also into a calling whereby others might come to know Him as well. Jesus spoke in the Gospels very, very pointedly concerning three great obstacles that everyone faces in deciding to become a disciple of Jesus and then concerning following Him wherever that relationship with Him might take us in life. Let me read the passage to you in Luke chapter 9. We're told that as it happened, as they were journeying on the road, Jesus and the disciples, that someone said to Him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he said to another, the first guy initiated it with Jesus, he then spoke to someone else, Jesus did, and said, follow me. But then he responded and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The obstacles that God faces in getting his people to follow him completely, not only into salvation, but then into his plan for, their li for our lives. Number one, a love for comfort. A love for comfort that is greater than my desire to follow Him and His plan for my life. I will follow you and I will obey you, Lord, as long as it doesn't affect my comfort, as long as it doesn't affect my standard of living. The second uh, great obstacle is the desire for financial security where there is this love for financial security that is greater than my desire to follow Him and His plan for my, lives. In other, my life. In other words, I will follow you, Lord, as long as it doesn't affect my financial security. And then the third obstacle is the approval of others, and specifically family approval. A love for the approval of family and friends that is greater than my desire to follow Him and His plan for my life. In other words, I'll follow you as long as it doesn't adversely affect any relationship in my life. 
And I think the lesson is clear. It would seem that from 2,000 years ago, right through history today, that these are the three big obstacles that Jesus hits in trying to get his disciples to follow him and his plan for our lives. And I get all of it. I understand every one of those obstacles. Every one of them is in my heart. Every one of them is in my flesh. Every one of them is in my life. My flesh wants all of that. It wants comfort. It wants financial security. It wants everyone to fully support every decision that I make in giving my life to the Lord and then following Him unconditionally. The interesting thing about Luke as he records that by the Holy Spirit is that Luke doesn't record the outcome of any of those three conversations that he had with those three men. The outcome is not recorded for us within the passage. And simply because it's not important to us what they then decided to do, what's important is what each of us decides to do with Jesus' call and purpose for our lives. So again, as with the early church, very often God is much more concerned about His plan for each of our lives than we are. So it raises the question, what is God's plan for your life and for my life? We'll just form a line right here. I'll lay hands on you and tell you uh, prophetically what it is. But we ask the question, what is it that is God's plan for your life and for my life? And the answer is, it is doing whatever He knows is necessary for us to not only get into heaven one day at the end of our lives, but also to hear these words from our Savior. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. And whatever is required of our lives and in our lives in order to hear those words, whatever He must do specifically in our lives, and whatever plan He has for our lives to lead us through this life, to expand the kingdom of God, in order to hear those words, that's His plan for our lives. Because He knows that no Christian who does not ultimately hear those words from the mouth of Jesus can ever consider their life to have been a success. And the church in Jerusalem was not going to hear those words by remaining in Jerusalem. And so what God did is He rocked their world and He got them moving again and got them fully engaged in His plan for their lives once again. And very often He uses circumstances in our life to sometimes regain our attention, reestablish our priorities as Christians, get us refocused on what is the purpose of our life, His plan for our life, and then moving out into it. As a Christian, this life is not supremely about my comfort. This life is supremely a preparation for heaven. It is about me taking my place in the Great Commission, getting into that place, and then staying in that place so that I can one day hear that well done and if we forget that, God then has His ways of waking us up, getting us back on track, or getting us on track altogether. And sometimes He can use physical circumstances in order to do that, in order to lead us in life and lead us into His calling. The second thing I want us to learn from the passage this morning is that it really helps us in giving us very helpful instruction concerning how to handle a season of scattering when it occurs within our lives, whatever the reason might be, in order that in that season of scattering we might maintain a godly perspective, a healthy perspective in the midst of it, rather than panicking, rather than fearing, rather than feeling that everything is out of control. And we will define a scattering, as it is used in our Bible passage this morning, as a scattering of our lives due to circumstances that are out of our control. So we're talking about some circumstance that occurs within our life. It is outside of our control that creates some kind of upheaval within our life, some scattering within our life. Not talking about 
the consequences of deliberate sin or the consequences of backsliding or rebellion against God. We're not talking about that this morning. We're talking about circumstances where something blows into our life, and now I have no control over it. I didn't produce it. I don't know why this is happening, and it is producing this upheaval within my life. It is scattering me. Examples of this can include persecution. And even though we don't face so much of physical persecution in this nation, this passage would be a great comfort to most of the Christians in the rest of the world who are literally scattered out of villages and out of cities and even out of countries at this point in human history simply for being Christians. And so here it is in the passage in Acts chapter 8, goes on all around the world today. So often per, uh, uh, persecution causes that upheaval and that scattering. Sometimes this occurs in our life as a result of a job loss or a job transfer or a move of some kind. Sometimes some health issue that is introduced into our life from out of the blue, or a divorce, or family problems, or a lawsuit, or the loss of a home through eviction or uh, foreclosure. The house gets sold, and, uh, and now I've got to find another place to rent. Again, circumstances that force us to move or force us into change that we wouldn't otherwise choose for ourselves. And I wanted you to notice a handful of things that help us maintain a godly perspective in that kind of a season. God wants to speak to some of us this morning from the passage because you're exactly where this passage is addressing. And number one, it's important to rest in the providence of God. That is, when we speak of God's providence, it is the recognition that He is in control, that He rules over all, and He overrules all to make everything in our lives serve His purposes in our lives. And so when a scattering occurs in our lives, which is out of our control as Christians, we're to rest in the providence of God. And sometimes that can be a very difficult thing to do, depending on the severity of the scattering. The realization to just stop in a place like here this morning and to stop and to realize my situation is not out of control. It is completely out of my control. But it is not and it never will be out of God's control. And He loves me and He is with me and He is for me. One of the most famous passages in all of the Bible reinforces this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know, this is something we need to know as Christians, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purposes. All things work together for good, not because we can work them together for good, but because God can and because He promises to do that. The fascinating thing in that Romans 8.28 is that uh, phrase, work together, is in the present tense there. It isn't just that God will work it together someday for good. The idea is that immediately and presently He is actively working it together for good, even if we can't see that at the moment uh, that we're in the middle of it. Examples of God's providence in the Bible on a personal level, I mean, they fill the Scriptures. We think about the patriarch Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, given dreams by God. God lays His plan out to Joseph, all of the great things that God intends to do in his life and through his life. And every dream that God gave to Joseph would come to pass. In fact, it would come to pass in a greater measure than anything that God had revealed to him. And he would become the second most powerful man in the entire world at that time. And he'd be used by God to protect and to save the bloodline of his family from starvation in order that not only his family would be saved, but in order that through that bloodline Jesus might be born into the world as the Scriptures had declared. But before all of that happened in Joseph's life, there was a scattering. 
He was sold into slavery by his brothers to the Midianites and again sold as a slave in Egypt and ultimately scattered into prison. But Joseph's life was never out of God's control, not for a moment. And the record of his life is in the Scriptures to encourage us when we find ourselves somewhere in between the promise that God has given to us concerning our lives and the ultimate fulfillment of it. We think also of David in the Old Testament, anointed as a young man to become the future king of Israel. But first there was a scattering, and he was scattered over virtually every inch of Judea and beyond as he ran for his life from the murderous intents of Saul against him. And so it went with Saul chasing him, attempting to kill him. And it didn't go on for a day or a week or a month or a year, but it went on for ten years. But all the while, God was overruling all of it in order to develop within David the character that God knew he would need in order to be successful as king and indeed to become the greatest king in Israel's history, barring Jesus. And through all of it, David's life was never out of control for a moment. And that season of his life, though difficult, was perfect in every way, though it would take years for him to see it as such, to see it as the needed thing in his life that it was. And then we look into the New Testament and we think about the Apostle Paul, who was ultimately used by God to almost single-handedly bring the gospel into the Gentile world and turn it upside down for Christ. And at one point in his ministry, in fact multiple points, but at one point in particular, he ends up in prison for his faith. And you look at Paul in prison and you think to yourself, at least I do, what a waste for that kind of a man to be imprisoned for even a day, to be taken out of circulation for even a day related to the gospel, let alone for weeks and months. And the life of the Apostle Paul wouldn't be long enough if he'd been given two lifetimes. He's going to end up being beheaded for his faith. He's going to die a premature death. Every moment that he has, every day that he has, is something priceless for the kingdom of God. And ultimately, he's going to, as I said, be martyred for his faith, and yet a portion of the years that he did have in his short life involved a scattering into prison. And yet God would overrule all of it, providing us as a result of that imprisonment Paul's letters to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to Colossians, to uh, Philemon, and all of these appropriately called the prison epistles. And who would want a Bible that did not contain those epistles if given a choice? And what is true of every plan and purpose and promise of God given to these men from the Scriptures is also true of you and me. Our purpose is different. Our ministries are different. Our calling is different. Our moment in human history is different. But he doesn't love us any less, and he isn't any less interested in every detail within our lives. As the Holy Spirit expressed through the Apostle Paul again in Romans chapter 8, and what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son but allowed him to, delivered, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And then there's the example in this regard of the providence of the God, his ability to rule over all and overrule all for his purposes and glory. And the greatest example of it in history is Jesus himself. And there's no greater example of the providence of God in human history than Calvary. Men thought they were doing one thing in crucifying Jesus, but God overruled all of it and made it serve his purposes. Satan thought he was doing one thing at the scene of Jesus' crucifixion, and yet God overruled all of it to make it serve his purposes. And God was, as a result of this, providing the world with a gospel, with a hope, 
with a living hope, with salvation, the forgiveness of sins, a victory over sin and death, the only righteousness that's suitable for heaven, the righteousness of Christ. And God, in his providence, God the Father overwhelmed that entire scene and turned it from one thing into another thing and made it serve his purposes. One of the greatest examples of what is declared in Psalm 76, verse 10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, speaking to God, and with the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. And if God can overrule Calvary, and if he can make it to praise him, then he can do so in a circumstance in my life and your life as well, and he will. Second, if we find ourselves in such a place this morning, it's important to remember that God's plan for your life is better than your plan. And that is so hard for me to believe at times in my life. It just seems impossible that anybody could come up with a better plan for my life than the one that I have come up with. The plans that we have for our future, and then they get disrupted. But no matter how perfect we think our plans are for our lives, if the Lord appears to disregard our plans, it's only because He has something better in mind for us. Again, the familiar passage Isaiah chapter 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, the Lord says, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. Okay, I get that, but he goes on. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. And it's true. Someone has put it this way, and I love it always when I think about Isaiah chapter 55. God nothing does nor suffers to be done. But what thou wouldest thyself do, couldst thou see the end of all he does as well as he. I have a friend who is now in heaven, walked with the Lord for 70 full years, and he took that saying and he kind of related and restated it in this way. God answers all of my prayers the same way I would answer them if I had his wisdom, power, and love. And it's true. And time always reveals it to be true. And each and every one of us as Christians, we have that track record. Those circumstances that we just would have done anything to get out from under these circumstances and, and to get out from under the situation that we were in. And then once the whole thing plays out and we see what God was doing and we experience what's happening in our life, we realize this was really a good thing. But then you think, all right, I'll never need to learn that for the rest of my life. And then the next scattering comes. The next storm comes. And I've got to once again stop and remember that uh, this fact that his plan, whatever he is up to, his plan is greater than the plan that I have for myself. I think that it's important to realize that God's plan for our lives not only involves what he wants to do through us as Christians, but also what he wants to do in us. That is, the person that he wants to make us into and the person that he knows we can only become as we travel on the path that he has chosen for us. I'll tell you as a confession, but I think most of us in this room could make the same confession. Otherwise, I wouldn't be vulnerable in this way. I hate to think of the person I would be today spiritually, but in all ways in my life, if I had remained in control of my own life and became self-protective from pain and suffering and change and hardship. And I would have probably become more and more addicted to comfort, more and more self-protective concerning my life if God had not broken in multiple times in my life, and I'm sure that I would have become more and more selfish, more and more small, more and more petty as a human being and as a Christian. 
But God's plan forced me to grow in ways that I would have never chosen for myself. And his plan does that. His plan is not only about our place in the Great Commission, but it is also about making us into the person that he knows he wants us to be and that will set us free. A good coach or a good physical therapist, and I've had both, will push us beyond where we would push ourselves. And they will push us into a success and a quality of life that we would never otherwise know. And it isn't always easy. It can be very, very painful. I remember one coach that I had in basketball in junior college. This guy was a, the king of suicides that we would run at the end of the practice in order to prepare us for proper fitness for a game. Physical therapists known for pushing us way beyond we would ever push ourselves. And God does the same thing in us in preparing us for what lies ahead in life and the life to come. And they have physical therapists and coaches. They have a bigger concern for my life than my comfort, and so does God. And there is a sense in which I think Romans 8.28 should never be quoted without at least a nod to verse 29. And verse 29 goes like this. I'll read verse 28 again. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purposes. But the passage goes on to say this. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined, and then here it is, to be conformed to the image of His Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, good, as it's declared there in verse 28, is defined in verse 29 as being that which conforms me into the image of Christ. That's which makes me more like Him. And God can allow very hard situations into our lives knowing that we cannot become like Jesus in certain areas of our life any other way. And we end up confused by God's timing and His actions in some situations in our life if we don't realize this. And if we don't look at the situation and in a moment of honesty with ourselves realize that I hate this, I would do anything to escape this trial and to escape it instantly if I could do that. But I recognize that this trial is making me more like Jesus in a way that could not otherwise occur. It's making me like Him in His compassion, in His love, in His understanding, in His grace, in His eternal perspective, in the material simplicity of the life that He lived, in His holiness, and so forth. And that's why Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 bring such a comfort and encouragement and perspective to anyone who's found in a deep trial or it's scattering. The writer of the book of Hebrews writes, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then here it is looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And when we look then at these circumstances that come into our lives, the reason that that passage becomes such a comfort to us and Jesus becomes such a comfort to us in his example is because we recognize that this great trial is forming me into his image in a way that ease and selfishness and self-protection would never allow to happen in our lives. And then third, we learn in this passage for such a season the importance of blooming where it is that God, the scattering, plants us. 
to continue to serve the Lord and to operate in your calling and in your gifting wherever the circumstances in life take you and me. And that's precisely what Philip did here. He just simply kept doing in a new place, in Samaria, what he had been doing in the old place, Jerusalem. He just kept on trucking, right? Word. All right, okay. <laughs> he just kept on keeping on. Or as the, God puts it in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, for the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. When God gives you lemons, make lemonade because someone is coming your way who will need a glass of lemonade. God is not going to waste your life and my life. I think about when Jesus uh, multiplied those five loaves and two fish and he fed that multitude of 5,000. The interesting thing to me is that following the feeding of them, they were glutted. They couldn't take another bite. This is Thanksgiving time loosening their belts in order to eat as much as they could. And yet after they'd eaten all that they could, the disciples went around and they picked up all of the leftovers that were there and it filled 12 baskets of leftovers. And I think to myself, why would Jesus have the disciples gather up the remains of this miracle? He could just turn around tomorrow and do it again. Just let the bread and the fish just rot in the ground and be done with it. And yet here is Jesus communicating that he doesn't waste anything, not even a portion of a miracle, not even bread, not even fish. He is not going to waste our lives, not the lives of his blood-bought sons and daughters, his children. And so it's not going to happen. He's not going to allow it to occur. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, our lives are not being wasted during that season that we find ourselves in that season. Not only did the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul produce the prison epistles, but he also continued his ministry to the Gentiles while in prison. Rather than kind of fussing and fighting against God and God's plan for his life, he, as the old saying goes, he bloomed where it was that he was planted. You say, how do I know that he did that? Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, that is my imprisonment, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all of the rest that my chains are in Christ and most of the brethren of the Lord, having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The importance of continuing on in our calling and remaining faithful to it in the new environment that our scattering takes us. And then fourth, look at all of the people that you're scattering or this uh, upheaval in your life has brought you into contact with that you would never know otherwise. And they are probably at least a part of the reason that you are where you are. And you might have been sent to bring the gospel to them just as Philip was brought to bring the gospel to the Samaritans. And so the car breaks down on a vacation, unplanned, and to look around and say, okay, who is this mechanical problem putting me into contact with that I would never otherwise come into contact with? And to think to myself, maybe this is what, in part at least, this is all about. A health issue occurs within our lives, and it opens up a whole new part of the mission field to us. I think about that concerning my cancer. It is put, I walked through a veil with that, and that introduced me in, to me an entire world of people that I would otherwise not be coming into contact with, except for the health issue within my life, a whole new part of the mission field. Sometimes a job transfer will do the same. Uh, being put in a new neighborhood as a result of a move and then to look and say, this is more about than what is happening in the physical realm. Who is this putting me into contact with that I wouldn't otherwise come into contact with? And then to ask the Holy Spirit for revelation and clarity 
upon uh, what it is that he is about here and who it is that he might use me to reach for Christ. And then fifth, the importance, and finally fifth, knowing that one day we will be happy that God has allowed the scattering into our lives. That just seems like words in a sermon. Stop it. Stop it. Anybody can say those things. But we walk with the Lord for a while and we realize that it's true. And we realize it's been true up to this point in our life. We just find ourselves in a more severe scattering, a more severe trial, a more severe upheaval than we've ever been in before. But what was true of the earlier trials will be true of this one as well. And somebody has to tell us that in a kind way, but they must tell us that that one day you'll be happy that God allowed this scattering into your life. Do you think that Philip is happy today that God allowed his circumstances to push him out of the relative comfort of his life in Jerusalem and into the fullness of his calling in Samaria and beyond? Oh, yes, I think he is. An entire city reached with the gospel and saved. And what is true of Philip is also true of us. The only thing we are going to take out of this life and take into the life to come is our relationship with the Lord and then the reward of the service that we have done for him here. And the Bible teaches that one day all of this world and all that is in it and all of the universe that it's going to burn. And it's a good reminder I like how Peter put it in his second epistle, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and both the earth and all the works that are in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. And nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And when Karen and I were new Christians, one of the popular sayings among, among Christians at the time concerning material possessions and the world itself was, it's all going to burn. You come out and you find a ding in your car, even though you parked at the end of the parking lot. And to look at it and say, well, it's all going to be, it's all going to burn. And I'll tell you, I don't think it would do any harm to the body of Christ for that saying to be revived. It's all going to burn. And God knows that it is. And he keeps his eye on what is important when we're prone to take our eye off of it. And he has a greater commitment to his will for our lives than even the best of us have for his plan for our lives. And he's committed to each one of us being conformed into the image of Christ being the finishing the ministry that he's called us to do so that one day we will hear that well done. And to sit in the middle of the upheaval, to sit in the middle of the chaos of the scattering that is a part of your life today and to look at it and to realize within the providence of God that somehow I need this in my life to one day hear that well done. And that brings an important and needed perspective. And God knows that it does. The missionary C.T. Studd famously said, Only one life, it will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. C.T. Studd is now in heaven and more convinced of its truth than ever. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8 a wonderful passage of Scripture to bring needed perspective to our lives during those seasons in life in which we are scattered in one way or another. Number one, it is important to rest in the providence of God. Second, it is important to remember that His plan for your life is better than your plan. Third, bloom where your scattering plants you 
Continue to serve the Lord and operate in your gifting and in your calling, whatever the, wherever the circumstances in life take you. Fourth, look at all of the people your scattering has brought you into contact with that you would never know otherwise. They're probably at least part of the reason that you're there. You might be sent to bring the gospel to them as Philip was into Samaria. And fifth, know that one day you'll be happy that God has allowed the scattering in your life. If not in this life, then you'll be happy for it in the life to come. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Isn't it interesting that as you read Acts chapter 8 before we pray, and you read the passage that is here, and I mean you read the horror of the persecution that's being meted out against that early church, and yet the tone of the chapter is joy. The tone of the chapter is victory. And, and it, it's just amazing because God, again, in his providence, overruling everything that was going on for his glory. I love the tone of it, this whole tone uh, of the passage. It is uh, his perspective and way of, uh, the way that he looks at it. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you so much for the encouragements that are found in this passage at a time of great upheaval, a time of great chaos, a time of great persecution, Lord, as you've described it in great detail within the passage. And yet you overruled it all for your glory, Lord, and for their good. And we thank you, Lord, for these little nuggets, these little gems that are found in the passage to help us maintain perspective, Lord, and to have a spirit and an attitude of joy and victory in the midst of the seasons of chaos and upheaval and scattering that come into our lives as well. We pray for all of the men and women that are on our left and on our right in this room, that stand before us and stand behind us, that are in just such a season. We pray that you would freshly fill them with your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give them a fresh flood, a flesh, fresh experiential experience of your love upon their life right now. And Lord, give them a gift of faith and a gift of confidence that what is true in this chapter of your Bible will also be true of this chapter in their life. Do not allow your word to return void, Lord. Let it bring the fullness of the comfort and perspective that is needed in each of our lives this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.